Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 161st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Tessa Felix. Tessa is the HR and Operations Lead for PWL Capital, an advisory firm based in Montreal and Ottawa that oversees nearly $3.6 billion in assets under management. What's unique about Tessa, though, is her particular focus on developing the culture of her advisory firm and the systems and structure that she's put in place to help hold everyone on the team accountable for their work, in addition to making the firm an enjoyable environment to work in. In this episode, we talk in depth about the reality-based leadership system that Tessa has incorporated into her management approach in the firm, why the emotional expensiveness of employee drama is such an important cost to manage and save for the firm, Tessa's routine of weekly team meetings, an internal team podcast, and monthly one-on-ones that she uses to maintain the culture of the firm, and why in the end culture is not just about creating a fun workplace, but about the actions and behaviors that are expressed in the workplace. We also talk about Tessa's own career journey, from joining her advisory firm in an operations role, earning her advisor licenses to shift into a client-facing advisory role, deciding that she actually enjoys the work of managing people and building culture more than working directly with clients and shifting back into an internal operations role, the way she navigated the challenging transition from being a peer of her coworkers to their manager instead, and how she ultimately became not just the HR and operations lead, but the culture lead for her advisory firm as well. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tessa shares some of the key books that have influenced her journey of learning how to develop and manage people and culture, the software tool she uses to help manage internal team meetings and employee engagement, and the importance of both cultivating a growth mindset in employees and having a growth mindset as a firm where culture itself will always be fluid and evolving. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tessa Felix. Welcome, Tessa Felix, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. I have to say I'm a frequent listener, and it's a bit surreal for me to be speaking with you. I I appreciate that. (laughs) And I'm excited to have you on because you are, well, I guess, like kind of relative to our traditional advisor audience, a little bit of a non-traditional listener, I know, because you are not actually based in the US, you are up in Canada. And and I believe will be our first official guest from financial advice in Canada. So looking forward to a little bit talking about like, hey, how does all this stuff actually work up there? Because we here in the US, I think for everybody in every country, like we kind of get used to our rules in our system because we live in them for our entire careers of doing this. And sometimes don't have context that the way we structure this stuff can be somewhat different in other countries. So kind of looking forward to just talking a little bit about how does this whole advisor thing work in Canada compared to here in the US and also your journey, because I know you've kind of had an interesting journey of starting on the operations side of an advisory firm, going to the advisor side of the advisory firm, and then saying, nope, actually like it on the other side more (laughs) and, and going back to focus into operations, HR, culture, like things that I think are incredibly important in building successful advisory firms. But I I guess even for the podcast ourselves, we've been a little bit guilty, perhaps, of focusing so much on the advisor end and not as much about 
the rest of the support system that has to be there to make the business work as a business. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about what that journey looks like and, and how you think about things like culture in a small advisory firm. Amazing. And you know, you bring up some really great points there. And the journey has been incredibly humbling and very exciting. And I'm willing to dive into all those things that you just brought up. So where would you like to start? So let's just start a little about the advisory firm you're at and and what it looks like. Like paint us a little bit of a picture of of the firm itself where you are. For sure. So we're similar to an RIA. So we have, you know, different offices with different cultures under one firm. And when I arrived at PWL, the bricks had really, they'd already been laid into the foundation of the team. And in 91, Cameron Passmore, who's the owner of our team and a partner at PWL, he began to build this practice. He was at an independent mutual, mutual fund dealership and it was all active. And in hindsight, when he tells the story, you know, he says he was he's a bit embarrassed by his level of knowledge at the time. And kind of moving along with his tiny practice, he happened to meet a Fidelity executive in Boston. And everything kind of changed there for him. He realized that you know, the world is changing and you shouldn't be paid by products and you want to eliminate that conflict of interest. So he started looking for other options. And this is early 90s. I mean, I'm this I'm is kind 91, of yeah. back, you know, similar to our advisor space in the US, like 1980s and 1990s, just the world revolved around mutual funds. Like anybody in the investment business that had any kind of advisor related title was probably essentially in the mutual fund brokering, dealing sales business. Sounds like is where where Cameron was as well. Independent mutual fund dealership, I think is kind of akin to our independent broker dealers that sell mutual funds here in the US. Right. And, And deciding like, Hey, maybe there's a different version of this than selling mutual funds. You got it. And, you know, there weren't many options back then and he that weren't, you know, a wirehouse or a brokerage. And he wanted to have, you know, control of the client experience and have a space to really be creative and progressive. And just knowing Cameron, he's he's an entrepreneur at heart and want to build something special. And in 96, he found PWL and he moved, you know, from all commission based to no load index funds and ETFs. And I think we were one of the first firms in Canada to welcome and embrace dimensional funds. Interesting. And and I'm thinking about I mean even here in the US, like our equivalent of like the no load space was barely existing. ETFs aside from maybe like the original spiders were hardly around. Like it was just, it was even hard to do like an independent advisor without getting the commissions because there weren't actually that many platforms or investment vehicles that were built for it back then. Exactly, exactly. So when, you know, when Cameron found PWL, they've, they've always been fee-based. And I think he, he was, he was pretty, pretty excited to join a, a company like that. So Help me understand this structure for PWL overall. So should I should I be thinking of this as as like a like a large independent advisory firm where just you have one brand, one thing, one centralized sort of firm unto itself. You simply have multiple branch locations, or is this more like there's a bigger wrapper around you of a platform that you're tied to, and then your firm with Cameron and PWL is kind of a particular location where you get to run your own version of what you do locally on some on a, a larger platform. Yeah. So within PWL, there are six advisory teams that are located across 
Eastern Canada. And we have a, our head office is located in Montreal and we have a, a, a centralized corporate team that provides you know, compliance support, marketing support, IT, technology integration, all those great things. So that's central corporate team. And then each, inv- each individual advisory office has their own practice. It's, it's a pretty unique, I think a unique setup. And so is PWL like the, the master parent level firm or is PWL like your particular location in Ottawa and then the other five locations have their own like local team names and structures? Yeah. So PWL is the, the kind of overarching firm. We, we all say that we are, you know, PWL advisors and we're, we're kind of able to do this because we have this foundational kind of commonality in our message. So we all have very similar investment philosophies and we're really planning, planning focused as teams. And then essentially the, the, is the advisors who lead in the various locations are like our partners, owners back to the centralized entity. You got it. Okay. Yes. Okay. And and like, how does this work in terms of a, I mean, I guess like a, a structuring, a licensing requirement? Like, do you have an advisor license separate from a, a brokerage sales license similar to what we do in the U.S.? Right. So the the basic licensing requirements that that you need to be able to give investment advice on securities, it's called a IROC. So IROC is the Investment Regulatory Organization of Canada. And a lot of our initial licensing exams are done through the Canadian Securities Institute. So you have to pass, uh, it's called your Canadian Securities Course Level 1, Level 2, the CPH exam, and then the Wealth Management Essentials exam. So those are kind of the baseline if you want to be providing advice on securities and to be able to trade. And and what is it from a practical perspective take to, to do that? I mean, is this a like I just kind of have to study some exams and get up on the rules and it takes me a few weeks or is this like a multi-year extended process for of, of <laughs> studying in courses and classes? Like how, how long does it take to get through the, the layers of exams that are involved? Yeah, yeah. I think it just it depends on your study habits <laughs> for sure. I think maybe some people might take a little bit longer. I think I, I plowed through my licensing exams in about a year and then kind of after that, it depends on how far you want to take it, right? So baseline, become a a licensed investment advisor. Next step, if you really want to take it to a client-facing role, especially within our team, then it's the CFP. So I think that answers that, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Like that's a, I mean, at least relative to our standards, like a a year long to get through all the different licensing exams is a a monster number. I mean, for for most here in the US, you know, our, our basic series exams which are our equivalent series 65 for being an investment advisor or typically a series six or seven for being a broker are I think for most advisors, things that they do probably two or three weeks. If you're just really fast at like crashing through the books, absorbing the wow. information, getting through folks that go longer, maybe go like a month or two, but single exam, two or three hours, depending on which one you're doing at which level got to get your 70% or 72% pass rate. And and you're often licensed and underway. You know, in, in our world, at least, wow. you know, people tend to go very quickly. From you know, we want to put you out there in front of prospects that you can go get clients, bring in assets, sell products, whatever side of the line that you're on. And so, our system's kind of built for a relatively expedited licensing process. Like if it, if it takes you a year to get through your licenses, yeah. I don't really want to carry your salary for a year, only to find out after a year that you're not very good at getting any clients. 
So our system is really, I, I, I think, kind of built around getting you through pretty quickly so that you can go out and get clients. And if it turns out you're good at, cli- at getting clients, we'll give you more opportunities and more training in the future about how to be deeper in your advice. Right, right. And again, I think it comes back to the person and kind of their their study habits. I think, I mean, it was a year for me <laughs> personally, but we've had we've had advisors on our team who can crank through, you know, the exams fairly quickly. In Canada, they they're offered every two weeks. So you could take you could even take it probably back to back if, you know, same day. If you write the the CSE level one, you could probably write level two in the same day. And then, you know, a week later you could write the CPH. And then, you know, there's a 36 month requirement to complete the wealth management essentials exams, which are two separate exams. So it, I think it just depends on your your study habits and how quickly you can get through through those exams for sure. Yeah, but just the the fact that you've got a layer of about five different pieces yeah. by the time you get through two or three up front and two, and two more on wealth management in the long run is is to me actually quite a quite a stark difference versus right how how quick we are out of the gate it's it's one of those things i think is having traveled to a number of countries with advisors around the world it, it's a bit unique in the us in a way that i don't think we sometimes realize and and maybe take for granted that we really have a a remarkably fast you know new entrance to market <laughs> to client facing pathway right from a from a licensing structure you know our, our lots of people aspirationally go much much further with their education with cfp marks and other post cfp designations but the the minimum bar here is actually a pretty low minimum relative to most other countries yeah yeah and i mean you're not just because you pass the exam doesn't mean that you're ready to be in front of clients right it's so much deeper than just you know getting some multiple choice questions right and i agree that the the depth of the training is, is incredibly important yeah inter- interesting and and what does it look like for just actually getting a firm started. I mean, I know PWL has now been doing this for 20 plus years, but for an advisor that wants to go out and start their their own equivalent of a licensed firm today, like is is it a similarly arduous process for what it takes to actually get a, a firm up and running? Or is it just as long as you are fine, firms just like the thing that you put on your business card? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. What what is what has the experience been in the states? So, so for the the U.S., it's kind of a split that I get. You know, I go through my licensing exams as, as an individual to be able to give advice. So we call it being an investment advisor representative of the registered investment advisor as an entity. The registered investment advisor as an entity has to go through its own registration process. Obviously, it doesn't take an exam because it's a corporate piece of paper. <laughs> But but there's a series of registration requirements to register the firm, to put forth the the regulatory filings about essentially, you know, where you can be found, whether you have any problematic regulatory history for things you've done in the past, the nature of the services that you will be offering clients. There are some standard disclosure documents that get prepared to explain what it is that your firm is going to do that you have to file with the regulators and they will oversee to at least make sure you seem to reasonably providing a service and a price that is commensurate with the service that you say you're going to be offering <laughs> and and some level of filing fees to get that done but in the US it's still ultimately a fairly modest cost at the end of the day you know, for just the the literal raw registration documents you're still talking about like the tens or a few hundred dollars if you need a compliance consultant 
to help you just create and fill out the documents. If you're not so comfortable with doing all these regulatory filings, you might pay three to five thousand dollars to to have a compliance consultant help you. But at that point, you you are essentially up and running. A handful of our states have a little bit of additional capital requirements. Might be something like you know, show you have at least. $10,000 of cash in the bank so that if you fold up shop and you have unearned fees, you can at least give the clients back the portion of the fee for the work that you didn't do. But most states have no capital requirements at all. And so truly all you need is just create a legal entity, do the paperwork filings, pass the exam as the individual who's going to represent the firm. And you can be off and running in in theory a week or two, although usually it's like a month or three, just because it takes a while to go back and forth with the regulators to get all the paperwork done and approved. Right, right. And so I actually, I haven't, I've been through a process of kind of opening or starting a firm, but I, I do know that we're, we're registered with IROC. Again, that's the Investment Regulatory Organization of Canada. And all of our filings are done. It's called the National Registration Database. So again, our, our firm is there. You're able to search our firm and all of our advisors who are licensed. Interesting. Interesting. So you similar i think to us here in the us like you have one set of rules and registration requirements for for sort of the investment advisor equivalent and then you've got a whole other separate channel for the folks that are tied to brokerage firms and in the the business of selling investment products is that a similar split right right so if you're going to sell mutual funds you'd have a, a mutual fund license if you want to give advice on kind of securities, then that's going to be the registered investment advisor with with the IRC regulatory body. So, okay, so like if I'm giving advice, if I'm giving advice, I'm getting a fee, I'm registering with IROC. If I'm selling a product and earning a commission that I'm registering as a broker or a mutual fund dealer. Yeah. 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 You got it. Okay. Yeah. And, and are there people that do both at the same time or are you generally like you're on one side of this divide or the other? I think there, there, there are probably people that have both. The majority of people in our firm and on our team are registered with IROC. Okay, so you just you you wear that one hat. Yeah. So so talk to us a little bit more about kind of the the size of the firm itself. I don't know if you measure by clients or assets under management the way we do here in the U.S. or or headcount or revenue. Like help us just understand sort of overall like size and reach of the the firm and how many people are being served and who's serving them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So PWL, I can I can break it down. I can talk about PWL stats kind of as a whole as a firm and then our team stats if okay. you like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I think that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, so as a firm, we have an AUM of 3.6 billion. Uh, about 63 employees. Again, we have the the six advisory teams located across Canada. And I, I work directly with Karen Passmer's team in the Ottawa in the Ottawa branch. So for team stats, we have an AUM of 1.7 billion, but average client size of 2.2 million. It's about 750 families. But our team's growing. We'll be 18 people as of March, and an average employee age of 34. Well, that's a very young base with it is, average age yeah. of average age of 34. Is that? Typical for what the advisory firm landscape looks like for other firms in Canada, or is your firm unique for being younger? I think it's maybe unique to our team. Okay, you know, it's it's not necessarily about age, but it's about impact. And if we feel someone can add a lot of value, then we'll we'll bring them on. 
Because the part of the challenge that we have here in the U.S. is just a, a significant age challenge. Depending on whose statistics you look at, the average age for a U.S. advisor is somewhere in the early to mid-50s. Right range by our CFP board stats. We actually have more CFP professionals over the age of 70 than under the age of 30. Wow. And so you know, when you look at a lot of advisory firms here, well, you know, as, as that math would bear out, like you get lots of firms where a big base of the advisors are in their 50s or even into their 60s. And maybe there are a few who are younger that are working in. But you know, a, a lot of advisors, well, kind of by definition, roughly half of them uh, <laughs> who are <laughs> who are in their 50s, 60s, or even up into their 70s. So uh, an average age of 34, you really don't see very often at all in the US unless it's literally like a bunch of advisors in their 20s and 30s who just started the firm from scratch. So a a firm at your size that's been doing this for 20 plus years and has an average age down at 34 is actually pretty unique. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, again, I can only really speak to speak to the data of our of our team. I don't think that's the same kind of firm wide. I think our team is yeah, uniquely young. <laughs> Interesting. And I am struck overall that just, you know, a, a $3.6 billion firm with, you know, average clients that are 2 million plus and, and 63 employees, like those, those statistics are actually quite similar to what we would see for a lot of wealth management oriented firms here in the U.S. It's a, a fairly affluent clientele, right. at least by our standards for, for independent firms. Certainly there are some ones that specialize with ultra, ultra high net worth where all their clients are tens of millions of dollars. And yeah. But for working with you know the the mere mortals of of millionaires <laughs> like that's a a very sizable firm and a and a very sizable average client household so is is that right right kind of part of where you focus overall that you built there or are you a much larger firm relative to the peers in your space I would say for the peers in in Canada for AUM I would think that we are maybe maybe larger Especially, I can you know in in Ottawa, I would say that that is true. We don't see many firms with this. Our our investment philosophy, our team structure, and assets under management. I think it's fairly unique. Okay, interesting. And and so, talk to us a little bit about your role in the firm now, and 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 where you fit into the the business in the local office there. Okay, should I can I maybe start with my journey into into financial services or just dive into the role? Yeah, I, I want to start a little bit of just what the role looks like now and then and then understand a little bit more about how you how you get to this what I think is fairly unique role for some of the the tasks or the responsibilities that you have within the firm. Okay. Yeah. So, I think for from how to define my role now, it's a bit unconventional. I'm I'm going to use Cy Wakeman's words here. So, Cy Wakeman is the founder and CEO of a company called Reality Based Leadership. And I'm going to use her words because I just, I can't seem to say it any better. Okay. And my role as a leader is to help employees eliminate what they call emotional waste, emotional expensiveness, drama, and judgment from the workplace by facilitating better mental processes. So I would say that, you know, if we want to dig a little bit deeper into that, Insight's research, she found that the average, it's American data, she found that the average American spends two and a half hours a day in drama. 
Okay. That could be, you know, two and a half hours a day walking around going, this is sick and wrong. I would never do things this way, right? Arguing against reality, resisting change, gossiping, tattling, venting, scorekeeping. So this behavior could actually be, you know, conversations between coworkers, or could that be, could be that internal dialogue that you have with yourself? I think we have movies about this office spaces coming to mind offhand. You got it. <laughs> you got it. So, I mean, I can, I can give you a scenario. So let's say a senior advisor and a junior advisor, right? They come out of a, a prospect meeting and the junior advisor is thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, I just, you know, butchered explaining our fee structure and our investment philosophy that prospects never going to become a client. Oh my goodness. My boss thinks I'm an idiot. Like he'd give me a funny look. I'm going to get fired tomorrow. Right. So you can see pretty quickly how that two and a half hours a day can add up when you look at it from that perspective and taking another step back, right. That's 17 hours a week. That's 68 hours a month. That's 816 hours a year per person lost in drama. So a big part of my role is helping people figure out, again, those a better mental process so we can really use that two and a half hours a day for something that's a bit more, a bit more effective and hopefully a bit happier. <laughs> so, so take me back again to just the, the, that kind of headline framing of how, how Cy puts it forth. You'd say like to help employees eliminate emotional waste. Like I just want to process that again now that I'm understanding more of the context. Yeah, yeah. So I can I'll I'll explain the a bit of the the philosophy. So reality-based leadership, they say that, you know, we all have this human condition, right? If we're not aware of sources of drama, we tend to default in the same way. We point to kind of other people and our circumstances for why we can't succeed. And the big lesson that Sai talks about is our circumstances are not the reason we can't succeed, but they're the reality in which we must succeed. So she has this kind of beautiful mantra, and it's almost become a non-negotiable in our office, which is stop judging, start helping. And the why she says that is because, you know, the second you fall into judgment, you stop serving, you stop leading, and you stop adding value. So the thing that really blew me away from Sai's work is this concept of emotional expensiveness. I mean, what do you think of when there's a tradi- you know a traditional performance review of an, of an employee? What do you think of, Michael? All right. So I'm I'm probably going in just trying to figure like did they did they hit their goals? How has their overall performance been? Do I feel like their productivity was good? Like did they get stuff done over the past year that I would have expected if they coming to work with a reasonable attitude so that I, we can get through what we need to get through in the business. You know, I, I think that's kind of my default. And they did, did we get the work done and how is our employee relationship to the business? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, current performance, a little bit of future potential and, you know, a, a huge part that's missing from that is the impact of emotional expensiveness. And again, insights research, she found that Emotional expensiveness has such an impact on the true value of an employee that has to be multiplied by a coefficient of of three. So, you know, let's say that you were going to go start a business, okay? And you knew me from maybe a past job, right? I'm highly technically competent and I work hard, but I'm like the most toxic employee out there, right? Are you likely to bring me to your new firm? No, no, this is kind of a problem, right? 
you got it. You're probably not going to bring me along. That's because you must offset any value derived from an employee by the emotional expense and emotional cost that that relationship brings to the team and to the organization. So, you know, again, this framework, what understanding emotional expensiveness has made me look at my own behavior and also the behavior of, of our people. And it's, it's all about kind of turning down the dial of emotional expensiveness so we can ultimately have, you know, a really effective, happy workplace. So, so what is this, what does this look like in practice? I mean, I, I, I sort of get conceptually like, Yes, when work has a lot of drama and everybody's spending time either like uh, gossiping or wrapped up in the drama, then we're not getting work done and hope we as a business owner that we get the work done and not get stuck in the drama. So like I sort of understand it conceptually and and you know people that have drama can infect us with others the team. So I I understand the the like the concept, but like what does that mean you're actually doing on a you know day-to-day or week-to-week or ongoing basis and trying to in trying to address this and trying to deal with this. Right, right. So kind of understanding what emotional expensiveness is, is the first step. And again, in size research, there, there are five competencies of being what they call emotionally inexpensive. So understanding what those competencies are and putting that into action happens on a daily basis. So you have like hundreds of coaching opportunities every single day with your employees and kind of understanding the first factor of being emotionally inexpensive, which is personal accountability has really helped me kind of change the conversations with our people. So again, it happens one-on-one putting these competencies into practice. Okay. So what are, what are my, what are my five competencies then? Yeah. Yeah. So personal accountability is, again, the holy grail of being emotionally inexpensive. So there are four factors that really contribute to someone being high in a high state of accountability, which is commitment. So, you know, that means buying in to the initiative, whatever you're trying to do without conditions. And that second factor is resilience, right? So it's staying the course in the face of obstacles. And, you know, really resilient people, they have they have two kind of things in common. They have often have large groups of social networks that they often crowdsource information from. And the second is they ask for help early and often from these groups. Now that that third factor is is ownership, right? Taking ownership of my my actions, you know, or my outcomes, good or bad. And that last factor is continuous learning, right? So it's learning from failure. So that's personal accountability in in a nutshell. And again, I I can't take credit for any of this. This is all Cy Wakeman's work. And the second factor is reality-based thinking. So understanding that, you know, getting down to the facts of situations instead of creating stories. So asking yourself that question, okay, what do I know for sure? Let's say, you know, my, my, my Cameron comes out of his office and, you know, maybe says something and I'm like, oh my gosh, like he, he's mad at me. But really it's like, what do you know for sure? All you know for sure is that Cameron's kind of out of his office, right? So it's getting down to the facts. Or like Cam- Cameron is upset. That doesn't mean he's upset with you or anything you did or anything that's related. He may have or may not have stubbed his toe on his desk while he was coming out the door or like all the, all the ways that we sometimes read into situations or other people's emotions instead of just saying like, no, all we actually literally know is like 
he came out of his office and he has a frowny face. So like, let's not it. read further into this than what we actually <laughs> Let's not know. read into that, right? You, you know, you kind of, you have to stop the stories, stop the stress. And so much stress is created by what we think. And it's not necessarily based in, in reality or facts. And that third competency is organizational alignment and understanding, you know, your opinion versus expertise. So like, what do you think the difference is between those two things, Michael? The difference between my opinion and my expertise, you know, one comes off the cuff and the other one hopefully I actually spent a little bit of time studying and analyzing to figure out. Right, right. So opinions often, you know, it could be biases. It could be, you know, what I prefer as opposed to what I know for sure. So the, kind of this, this competency of organizational alignment focuses on how we can make something work based on our expertise versus why we can't. So that that's kind of the big the big area of expertise in, in organizational alignment. And the fourth is capitalizing on change. So again, organizations, a lot of teams, there's change happens, right? And it's understanding that we all experience the same three kind of steps when it comes to change, which is surprise, panic, and blame. Right. Let's say, okay, guys, we're going to implement a new e-sign process on our team for client accounts. Right. Some people will be like, awesome. Like, I'm, I love e-sign. I love electronic paperwork. This is going to be beautiful. Or, you know, maybe some people on the team will, oh, but I love paper and I'm so attached to it. And they start resisting. So a really interesting thing is that some people, when it comes to change, they're going to stay in what we call resistance. Right. Some people are going to go to maintenance and then kind of the next step to that is some people are gonna gonna quickly go into what reality based leadership calls vision. So in a change, Michael, where do you think the average leader spends the most time with resistance, maintenance people, or vision? In practice, we spend our time with the resistance people trying to win them over. You got it right. So an average leader spends an extra eighty hours with somebody who's in a chronic state of resistance. But what the research shows is you only have a one to three percent chance of changing somebody's mind who's in a chronic state of resistance. So while it kind of may be possible, right, where's where's a kind of better place to put our leaders' resources? With the vision folks who are excited to march forward with whatever my crazy vision is as an entrepreneur. You got it. You got it. That's right. So it's understanding kind of the mentality that people will go through when change is implemented. That's the, the fourth competency. And the fifth is is driving for results. So, you know, understanding that you have two paths in life, right? You can end up with a positive result or a learning, or you can end up with, you know, reasons, stories, and excuses for for why you couldn't get something done. And the reality is we're always going to have extenuating circumstances, right? We're never going to have a perfect reality. And it's our job to to succeed, to succeed anyways. So that's reality-based leadership in a nutshell. <laughs> so uh, so I just like so where, like where have you learned and absorbed all of this? Like you are uh, you you've you have clearly lived and embraced this because like you 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 know your talking points well. <laughs> this is not our conversation today. It's not the first time you have been talking about these <laughs> these talking points. So where like where did this like where does this come from for you? Yeah, yeah, and I mean it. It all started with kind of my my journey into this role. I started spending a ton of time just reading and researching and learning about culture. And I eventually landed on Cy Wakeman's book called No Ego. And it was really unconventional. And I kind of was reading it. I was like, oh my gosh, like this goes against everything I thought was great leadership. 
And I, I actually put the book down for a while. I was like, I don't want to read this. But I was like, you know, okay, no, I, this, this goes against my thinking. I should read this. And I, I got, I really got into it. And then I, I found that she, she has a certification course that she does, a three-day kind of intensive certification that she does in Omaha, Nebraska. So I flew to Omaha and I attended her certification course and it was probably the best three days of learning I have ever had. And that kind of what they teach you at the certification course is to, to basically be able to go back to your organization and teach the reality-based leadership philosophy to leaders and also to employees. So this is something that I've been working through at PWL over the last year. Very cool. So for, for folks that are listening, this is episode 161. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 161, we'll, we'll have links out for the No Ego book and, and the reality-based leadership certification course if you're if you're curious to to look this up as well. I am wondering though, like what what was it in the no ego book that was like this this trigger for you? I think you you would say like they were taking all these things that you thought about leadership and demolishing them and tearing them down. So what were the shocks or the revelations that were coming from this as you were going through and reading it? Right. Right. So when I, again, when I initially started kind of cultivating this, this culture role, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I was very naive at the time. I said, okay, how can I make work happy? How can I engage employees? How can I motivate people? And, you know, inside his book, she says, you know, you can't, with all of these things, you can't have accountability it kind of leads to if without accountability, all of these great things will lead to entitlement. And I was like, whoa, okay. That changes my mind a little bit. All right. If things are just always happy and I never actually have the consequences of not doing the things that I said I was going to do, then then things are always happy and I just expect that they're always going to be happy. And then I get entitled and get grumpy anytime they're not happy and work isn't fun anymore. Right. Right. So when you're missing that personal accountability piece, it, it can lead to a fairly negative work environment. So, you know, when I first got in the role, I was developing all these things to engage employees and make work happy. And all right, no more Friday beer and right? no more ping pong table. Right. Got it. Right. So, and like I, my initial concept of culture, I, I thought, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's perks. It's all these things. Of, of course, it's not perks. And, you know, reading Daniel Pink's book, Drive, right? Motivation is a choice. Engagement is a choice. So can we facilitate and have a really open, transparent work environment? Yeah, but it's up to the employee, whether they're going to be motivated or not, whether they're going to work hard or not, whether they're going to be engaged or not. So again, cultivating and fostering that that personal accountability in our people has has made a, a fairly big difference. All, all I can think now is like, so so the famous Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross moment where he shouts out coffee is for closers, like is actually a legitimate, <laughs> a legitimate approach to reality-based leadership. You know, you can't have the coffee until you're accountable for your results. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. How about that? So so I, I can kind of imagine now the the shift of like you you're taking on this leadership role, like, I'm gonna be an awesome leader. I'm gonna get in there, like we're going to have some cool perks. I'm going to keep people motivated. Like I really want to be engaged. We're going to do these fun things. Like I'm so excited to leave my team. And then so I was like, yeah, if you do all that stuff, you don't figure out the accountability. They're just going to be entitled and then you'll be miserable. You nailed it. Like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it really, it really like it hit me in the face. I was like, wow, like this is, I really got to look into this because first, first trying to figure out the role and, and, just when I read her stuff, I just, it really resonated with me. And 
it's, it's, I, I think I attribute her work to being kind of this additional push on our team's flywheel as we kind of kind of continue to gain, gain momentum. And yeah, it's, it's made a great impact. Interesting. So, so what does this look like in practice of, okay, so I can't do the fun stuff until we have our accountability mechanisms in place. So like, then what is reality-based leadership preach around how you're supposed to do the, the accountability part? Right. And I think that comes back to, to culture. Like, yeah, like, of course you can have fun stuff at work. Like we have happy hour every Friday, you know, we do a meditation practice at work. We do have a fun and work environment. It doesn't mean take it away. It just means, you know, the biggest part of culture is that culture is fluid, right? Culture is actions, it's behaviors, skills, and knowledge that people bring, bring to work every day. So, if personal accountability is something that we value, how can we put that into action? And I think where that comes from, you know, is, is really putting that into practice. So, you know, like I said before, you have hundreds of coaching opportunities with your people every single day. And that one-on-one conversation is a great way to act on what you value and facilitate better mental process. So, you know, if you're in a situation where an employee is struggling, right, as a leader, do you fall into sympathy? and reinforce kind of that victim mentality or do you use empathy and help the person see that they can have an impact on their challenging circumstances, right? So again, fostering that, that great mental process for accountability and the magic really happens in those moments. So again, understanding what, what accountability is versus kind of its opposite, which is learned helplessness. So again, acting on that every day. It's like, if you see, if you see an employee struggling, do you just leave it and walk away or do you use that as a coaching opportunity? Interesting. And so, so now help me understand a little how you get to a role where you are taking in (laughs) stuff like this and trying to do this in a, in an advisory firm. Like, did you go to college for psychology or, or management or something along those lines? Yeah, yeah. No, I went. I, I my degree is in psychology, but it really is just a. It's a. It's a. It's a passion. I'm just really fascinated with again, like what makes a culture great, and how can we how can we help people be the best version of of themselves. And you know, when I when I started at PWL, this was not my role at all. So how did how did you start out at the firm then? Yeah, so I started uh, at the firm January first, two thousand fourteen, as an operations administrator. And you know, in that role, you're 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 the administrative backbone of the team, right? It's paperwork, it's meeting prep, it's coordination with compliance departments, and you know, general client service. And again, after about a year of that, I became an IROC registered you know representative. So you you are kind of crossing the divide of okay, I started in operations, but I'm going to go do this advisor thing. So. So I'm crossing over and going down that career track. Yeah. So I was on the path to becoming client facing and I was looking into the CFP and, but I knew that's not where my heart was. And, you know, I was super nervous to kind of break the news to Cameron, right? You don't want to let down your boss. And when I told him, he just said, you know, great, what do you want to do? And told him about, again, my, my passion for high performance teams and what it takes to really create a high functioning, you know, workplace culture. And he said, awesome, like, let, let's do it. So I think I was 23 years old when he totally just gave me the reins to take the role and run with it. And, you know, you can talk about trust and sharing responsibility, right? He, he always says it's all about people. 
you know, so from 2015 to 2018, I was balancing two roles. So a huge part of my day was dedicated to getting through high volumes of, of paperwork and meeting prep, and we were experiencing a lot of growth. So, you know, there's actually a time where I think I was creating anywhere between five to 15 client onboarding packages a day. It was wild. And, but also during this time, right, culture and HR was my side hustle. So I go from completing paperwork packages, which obviously had to be priority, to interviewing accountants to lead our family office department and having development meetings with, with our employees. So it was a bit of a strange, strange contrast, but you kind of just have to put ego aside and do what the team needs at the time. So, you know, ripping through high volumes of paperwork by day and by night, just in my spare time, I was spending every w- waking moment reading about culture and leadership and kind of put myself through this self-induced ongoing culture boot camp. And by November 2018, my full-time role became culture HR and the operations lead for our team in Ottawa. Interesting. So, so talk to me about this. So the, this transition period you had, I guess, back in, in 2014, 2015 of, of like, I, you know, I've joined an advisory firm. I'm like, I'm starting on operations. That was my foot in the door. I'm getting my licenses. I'm to become an advisor. I, I make the switch. I'm becoming an advisor. And then another year later, and you're making a hard left back to the, back <laughs> to the path that, that, that you had been on previously. Like, Talk to us more about what was what was going on there. Like why why not continuing down the advisor road? You get lots of opportunities to work with clients and try to help them to be their best selves and, and achieve their goals. Like what right. what was going on that that advising clients wasn't working, but managing team members is like, I want to go back and do that. Right, right. So and I think I you know, I, I was young when I when I first joined joined the team, and I had it in my head that you know the the definition of success was becoming a client facing advisor. But it was it was at such a disconnect for me and what I wanted to do. And I was I was fortunate enough to be in a situation to have a really supportive leader in Cameron, where he really supported again taking that left turn and completely changing career paths and kind of since then our a team philosophy we always say you know it the definition of success is not the be all end all to be it's not to be an advisor i mean if that's what you want to do and that's what you're passionate about that's awesome but if you want to stick to a more back office role and really own that department that's awesome too so i think that the definition of of success and changing my mentality about that is where it all started so how does that come about. I mean, I, I, I know people who have gone down what in retrospect was probably not their ideal definition of success for like their lifetime. <laughs> and then it, yeah. it's like when they were retiring, like, Oh no, I'm actually going to go do the thing that I realized in retrospect, I probably wanted to do for like 30 years, but denied myself. Like you, you, you started down one path and, and made just what to me is a, a rather quick realization that wait this actually isn't the thing i like and want to do i'm not going to have this be my my definition of success so what like what was going on that that pulled you back from that or made you turn the other direction yeah i think it maybe was just where i was at in in life you know i I graduated university you know fairly recently before i started working at pwl and again just doing a lot of a lot of reading on kind of self-development and, you know, 
asking myself those questions, like what, what really makes me happy? Like what brings me joy and getting to that realization of, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I, for some reason really enjoy working and managing people and helping them see their circumstances in a different way. And I think that's what kind of made, made a big difference, a big difference for me. And, but the, the support though, the support from, from Cameron to literally, you know, hand me this job and kind of cultivate and create it. I mean, you can imagine if he said, oh yeah, no culture, culture doesn't matter and people don't matter. And let's just grow the business. Right. I, maybe I wouldn't end up where I am today. So it's also leadership, right. And helping people grow and develop in the direction that they want. So I, I can't just, it's not just me. It's, it's also the leadership around me that, that really supported this. Well, I, I certainly, I get it. I not even, well, I would hope at least most most firms or people leadership wouldn't quite go so far as like, eh, you know, people don't matter. Let's just go grow yeah. this thing. But, but I do think there's, you'd hope not, would hope not, or the business will tend to hit its own ceiling. But, but I think there is just a very sort of practical limiting factor. Like, look, there's all sorts of like cool things I would hypothetically like to do in my business to, you know, make us a great place to work and have great managers doing all sorts of great ongoing things with our team. But at some point, like, I only have so much budget. There's a lot of other competing demands in the business, like marketing and sales and operations and advice and software tools and all the different things. Like it's, it's, it's one thing to say like, yeah, you are, our, our people are valued here. It's another than figuring out like, but can I actually afford to hire someone who wears a hat of saying culture is, is either your sole focus or even just my, my primary focus or a key focus. I, I know that ultimately you, you wear a couple of different hats because you've, you've got, I guess, uh, an accountability for culture, for the overall HR functions of the firm. And I think you had said for kind of leading the operations team as well. So you, you do this uh, across a few different domains. Yeah, well, it's just it's just specific to our team. So I, I don't do the HR for the firm. Okay, so the, the, I think you said uh, 18 people who, yeah. are, who are locally there and building that location. Yeah, yeah. So... So how was that conversation in going back to Cameron, going back to a boss of like, hey, you know that thing like a year ago that I really <laughs> said I wanted to do and you were really nice to let me have an opportunity to do it? I'm having second thoughts. Like, like how does that conversation go or even bringing it up? You know, very uh, nerve wracking, right? You never want to let down your your boss, right? You want to impress your boss and, you know, set out to do what you what you intended to do. But, you know, I just I I had to be had to be honest about kind of where where I wanted where I wanted to to go. And that was definitely still on the team. I wanted to make a, a huge impact on the team in some way. I just knew that wasn't going to be client facing. And I yeah, I mean I just I just I let him know and his reaction was was awesome. You know, he just said he said great. Like let's let's figure out what you want to do. So it was, it was actually pretty, when I look back and it was actually pretty, it was a great conversation. That was a turning point in my, my career for sure. And, and you had it cause you just said like, I'm, I'm just not happy doing this advisor thing. I'm going down the road of doing, I, I, I need to go this other direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really we were, we were in a position where, I mean, I've only been in the role, you know, since November, 2018. So I really was, I was managing the ops role. And then again, culture was kind of the, the side hustle and HR was a side hustle over time from the 2015 to 2018. But now 
we, we kind of have enough people that I was able to move full time into the culture role. Well, that's one of the interesting effects overall of just a growing firm. I, out of curiosity, I think you said there are so there are eighteen people there locally now. Like how how many were there was it, six years ago when you were first coming in as an operations administrator? Yeah, so I was the fifth empl- employee, and that was in two thousand fourteen. And now we're at well, we'll be eighteen eighteen people in March. So you know, there's there's a few a few years there where we were. We're rapidly, rapidly yes. hiring just to manage the growth, just to manage the growth of of the business and really kind of put the structure in place in order to to scale. You know what had kind of landed on us, so we did a lot of rapid hiring going on there, and we still hire. We'll, we still hire and search for talent pretty aggressively. Interesting. I because I, there's there is an effect to for me. I I. And I experienced this in in my own career journey at a firm that through kind of similar years and stages of my career had a very similar growth rate and trajectory. You know, I, I think I was like employee number eight when I had uh when I had joined Pinnacle. And by about six years later, we were probably twenty-five or thirty employees, and like the client base had almost quadrupled. Wow. wow. Used like similar big growth years and working crazy hours and (laughs) onboarding a bajillion clients and all of that. But ultimately that also created opportunities for me from a career perspective that like just flat out wouldn't have existed in the firm I joined when I joined it. Like I, I, what did that journey look like for you? So, so from my end, it was, it was being able to come in. Well, for a firm at the time as a, as a director of financial planning that originally was just a department of, of me, and then yeah. was because what happens when there's only fit everybody at one table at the at the holiday dinner, but then it was yeah. a department of two and then three and then four and then five and more and and hiring people and training people and then for me ultimately a shift that said you know similarly like I went down a path for a while and then said you know I'm actually not sure that this is what I want to do the thing that I really like doing is some of this writing and speaking educating back to the industry and trying to work with the whole of advisors and and not just the ones that are within our firm. So I would, I you know, went back to our founding partners and said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to do this thing where I've got one foot inside the firm. Cause I still like getting to apply some of what I do here in the firm, but I also want to have one foot outside the firm so I can kind of scratch this itch about impacting the industry and the advisor community more broadly. Right. And then just reflecting back on it, like that would not have been feasible for the business at the size we were when I joined it was feasible for the business by the size we were a couple of years later. You know, we had a little bit more economies of scale, a little bit more flexibility in the budget. Like there were ways to make this work at, you know, for our size, I think at that time, 800 million at the time that just wouldn't have been feasible when I joined and we were under $200 million. I'm sure at the time it would have been like, look, you're either all in or you're all out. No offense taken if you're all out, but like we, we can't tuck you in on a part on a partial basis. We just, we need the resources elsewhere. And, and it was like, for me, it's still been one of the formative things about kind of like reflecting on career opportunities for people coming into the, into the industry overall, that you just being at a firm that is growing. If you have Mm -hmm. upward aspirations for moving up in, in the, (laughs) in the firm, wherever you are, you just being at a business that's growing creates fascinating opportunities because you know as the org chart 
literally gets bigger as the business grows, there will be new positions that get created that don't exist when you show up and may or may not have existed in the future. But you know what? If it's a good firm and it's growing well and you're doing good work and you say, here's the thing I want to do in the future that I think can impact the business positively, yeah. we tend to figure out how to make this happen because it's it's good for business and good for the team and good for everyone when you've got motivated people that are excited to move into a new and different role, even if it wasn't quite what the firm was originally. But it but it all hinges on having some level of of growth in the first place. You know, firms that are moving up. I mean, I, I've now kind of taken it to a sort of a rough rule of thumb of you know, like businesses that are growing at fifteen percent a year or more. I find tend to be able to create create those opportunities fast enough. Just if you kind of do the compounding math, a business that grows at fifteen percent a year basically doubles every five years. So you know your your org chart and all the opportunities in it will be will be twice the size in 5 years and quadruple the size in 10 years so you know uh, if you're employee number 5 there will be 15 more roles that have, don't exist today that will be there in 10 years and you know if you're growing at 25% it only takes you 6 years to quadruple the business which it sounds like is about where you guys have have gone in the journey yeah we're living that yeah we're living that right now yeah. for sure and it just it's to me, it becomes a filter when you're trying to decide, like maybe as a younger or newer, just newer advisor, it's not even age dependent, just newer advisor looking at your career of, you know, if if you want a firm with some opportunities, if, if you're not quite sure what the opportunities are, or they're not quite sure, you, just businesses that are growing, lots of opportunities will get created. And frankly, you can figure out what they are later. If the firm is growing and you're doing good work, there is a very high likelihood everybody's going to come together. <laughs> To yeah. figure out how to make the right role work, as long as the growth is there. There's in Silicon Valley in the tech world. I know there's a, a, a famous saying. I think Sheryl Sandberg had put forth mm. originally that like if you ever get a chance to get on a rocket ship, yeah, you don't ask what seat. It's <laughs> such a great quote. You just get on the rocket ship and you'll yeah. figure out where you're going to sit later because you got it. You're on a rocket ship. It's going to work out. Yes, exactly. Yes. And uh, you know, granted, companies in Silicon Valley grow at like several extra zeros of compounding <laughs> growth rates than uh, than what we sometimes get in the in the advisor world. But the I think the same principle still holds up, and it, it sounds like certainly was part of the the journey for you that you you got to move into a role that just wouldn't have been feasible in the firm that you joined. But lo and yeah. behold, when you have a passion for it, and the firm is growing, and new opportunities are getting created. You figure out how to how to make it work and how to formulate it. Totally. And I mean, that, that comes into, into play for a lot of the roles on roles on our team and kind of how we've structured things. And, you know, people have these amazing opportunities to kind of really have total autonomy over, you know, their processes and, you know, their, their decisions and where they want to take, where they want to take, you know, what we call them, their departments. And it's, it's amazing what really great, talented, responsible people can do when you just kind of empower them and get out of their way. I like how you from that. Yeah. It, it, say it again. It's amazing what, what good talented people can do when you get out of their way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Delegate and get out of the way. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Empower people and get out of their way. Very cool. Very cool. So, so now help me understand a little bit more of like what this sort of culture management leadership role looks like at a at a practical perspective, like what is, like what's a typical week in the life of, of Tessa at this point? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, 
typical week, I mean, a lot of it, like how, how to put all of this, this framework in into practice. And again, again, culture is, right, it's about actions. It's about behaviors. You know, you can't just take a bunch of nice words, slap them in a boardroom, and boom, you have nice culture, right? So putting it into practice every day, you know, some of the things that we value, right, personal accountability. So again, using every opportunity I have to have coaching conversations with with teammates. And another thing that we, we value is is feedback. So, you know, if we want feedback to be the norm on our team, you know, what can we put in place to really cultivate that culture of feedback? And, you know, again, we so we've I've actually just recently implemented a new tool it's called Fellow, and it's amazing. I mean, it's a it's a great kind of software to to give feedback. Fellow, like fellow human beings, fellow. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's called the Fellow app, and I mean, let me tell you, if you want to create a culture of feedback, you want to use Fellow. <laughs> it's awesome, and I mean, first steps in behavior change, right? Make it obvious, make it easy, make it attractive, make it satisfying. And again, if feedback is something that we value, then we want to make that a really easy thing for people to do. So what is what exactly is fellow and what does it do? Yeah, so fellow is it's a great it's a management tool. So I use it for all of my one-on-one meetings with employees. So we have frequent development conversations where we can both collaborate in an agenda and we can build it together and you can also delegate or kind of give action items that are really obvious. So it's easy to see what you have to get done. And you can also set your your priorities. So it's a, a great one-on-one tool, but also a great kind of meeting meeting tool. So we have department meetings on our team, weekly department meetings, and everybody can kind of contribute to the the agenda. So it also tracks kind of the history of the conversations and what action items have been delegated and what's been done. So that's kind of fellow in in a nutshell. And it's pretty it's actually quite recently that we implemented it, but it's 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 made a made a pretty big difference. Interesting. So I, so if I'm gonna regularly do one on one meetings with my team as part of the the management process, then we like we can create an agenda in fellow if if things are coming up then i'm going to tell my team like hey uh you know our one on ones on monday if you got anything that you want to make sure we're covering you know put it on the put it on the agenda in fellow so yeah. we, we make sure we don't forget about it on monday yeah yeah so i mean yeah and it, it's a it's a great tool so you know a lot of my day is kind of figuring out you know okay what, what's on the agenda? What's on the agenda this week? And what development meeting conversations do I have this week? It's a lot of looking for kind of not, yeah, looking for technology that can kind of really help support the culture that that we want to have. Uh, another thing that happens weekly uh, in our office, we have a, a wellness is another thing that we, you know, really, really value. And we have a meditation practice at work. So there's actually a, a solid group of us about maybe eight to 10 people that will sit down for 10 minutes and we'll meditate together every day. That's part of my day. And yeah, it's a lot of just, again, just being resilient and, and, and figuring out what needs to be done. So is there a structure to how you go through the week of oh yeah, Monday? I'm, I've, I've got team meetings, Tuesdays, I do my one-on-ones, Wednesday's a miscellaneous day. Is, is there a cadence like that for how you handle just managing this team of people? Yeah, yeah. So Mondays, we call them our team focus day. So we actually don't book any client meetings on Mondays, which is pretty intentional. It's kind of a day to really focus on, okay, I'm going to prep for my week. I'm going to get ready. We have a lot of our team meetings will happen on Mondays. 
So kind of getting ready for that and then moving through the week. Yeah, one-on-one meetings. Cameron and I, we actually do an internal team podcast. We call it the Culture Cast. And it's it's not kind of out there, kind of on the web at all. It's just for our team. And this is where we talk about team updates. People can give shout outs, any sort of biz dev things that are going on. So it's kind of a, a platform to, to share what's going on on the team. So there's there's prep for that. And you do that on a weekly basis? Every week, yeah. So, so what happens on the what happens on the culture cat? Like, how how long <laughs> is it? What are you talking about? I've, I I do not know any other firms that are doing weekly podcasts for internal team. <laughs> right. So, I mean, the reason why we created the culture cast was so we used to have like these big roundtable roundtable team meetings, and it was honestly they they were pretty useless. I won't lie. It was, uh, it was good to get together as a team, but the information that was being shared wasn't really relevant to everybody in the room. So we decided to break up that really, really large kind of cumbersome team meeting and, you know, share any necessary updates that affect everybody on this platform of a podcast. So the podcast, the culture cast replaces that large team meeting that was going on. And, you know, they, they can get pretty funny. There's a lot of, it's kind of good for morale. There's a lot of good humor that happens on them. And, and again, it's a great way for people to show their gratitude, right? Give shout outs to employees. And it's an opportunity for them to reflect on things that were great during the week and show appreciation for, for your teammates. So I think it's it, so far so good. I mean, it's it's. I think we've been doing it for two years. Well, that's a long time. That's uh, like yeah, it's a really fun tool. <laughs> and wait again, and, and how long are they running? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, so the episodes. I mean, they can range from ten minutes to like twenty minutes. Depends on what we're talking about. So again, it's it's updates, it's shoutouts and recognition, and then I'll try to kind of have a section of what I call things worth thinking about. So, you know, I'll talk about things like the negativity bias or, you know, the illusion of transparency. What else? Like how to, how to build habits. So I try to make it some sort of like a value add for people to take away, you know, reduction of stress, uh, all those sorts of things. So it's a kind of a, a cool platform to share, you know, the things I'm excited about, which is psychology. <laughs> Interesting. And, and like, how did this come about? Like, how do you, how do you get to the point where you're doing an internal team podcast? Yeah. I mean, it came about because we were, we had, we had asked for feedback, right? We have something we value and people were like, the team meeting is not effective. So we're like, okay, let's listen to our people. Like, bye-bye team meeting. Okay. How can we share? But there's, there's still people who are like, well, I still want to feel connected to the team and, you know, hear about the you know, general team updates. And we're like, okay, I think, I think a podcast could work. So we gave it a go and I, I think people find it effective. And so how are you just making this happen from a, a podcast and like, just like now, now do we have to hire a team member who just does the internal <laughs> weekly culture. Cast? Right. But, yeah. So we actually have, on our team, we we do have a public podcast called The Rational Reminder, which is hosted by my brother, uh, Ben Felix and Cameron Passmore. And so we have all of this equipment and we have a studio in our office. Okay. So it just so happens that I'm able to use great equipment to have our internal team culture cast. And just who produces it or, or is the idea like this isn't fast, fancy, just like Cameron and I sit in front of a mic and we chit chat for a while. We hit the record button, then we're done. We send a sound file to everyone. Yeah, no, we do. We do get a, get an edit done, and that's just done through our, our marketing department in our corporate office and our head office. And you know, it's it's pretty quick, and they you know they turn it around usually the same day, and then we just release it release it to everybody. 
and and like literally as a podcast. I mean, I get you don't advertise it, but like, can I if I know where to look, can I actually like find this thing on iTunes or are you sort of circulating a local an internal sound file? You got it. So it, we use Microsoft Teams as our platform to share knowledge okay. as a firm and as a team. So we have a team channel called you know, culture cast and I upload the file there and then just give people a little blurb about, you know, what, what the episode is. And there's some, sometimes conversations that happen within that channel about what we've talked about. And yeah, so that's how we share it. Okay. Very cool. So, and, and I guess for those who aren't familiar, so my Microsoft teams is, is kind of Microsoft's competitor equivalent to Slack's, I guess for viruses that don't know Slack, like it's a, it's sort of an internal communications it's not knowledge sharing tool. Platform yeah. where you can create multiple different channels to have conversations by department or with certain teams or with certain groups or just things that you want to broadcast to the whole business. Yeah. Very cool. So so what are some of the other kind of like technology tools and pieces you're using? Like I'm fascinated just hearing some of this. Like we do culture cast podcasts and we and we broadcast the Microsoft Teams. You're using the Fellow app, which I have never seen or heard of, and I'm now excited to look up when I am done with our podcast here. Again, for folks listening, episode 161. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 161, by the time you are hearing this, we will have looked up and found the Fellow app and put a link to it <laughs> in the show notes. What else are you using, Tessa, for doing the the this kind of technology to enable better management. Yeah, I mean actually we we started a long time ago. We started with Slack and it was an it was an awesome tool and it kind of yeah, yeah. It was our we you know you create all these different channels like advice, planning, operations. So I, I feel the I feel the butt coming though. Like Yeah, the butt. Yeah. So but as as a firm, so our team was just using Slack. Okay. And I think actually some other teams in PWL were using Slack as well. But uh, as a firm, we made a decision to all migrate to Microsoft Teams. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with Slack. But just as a firm, that was the decision. And we all had to get on board with Teams, which turns out to be a very robust, amazing tool. Yeah. Like Slack's, Slack's a cool thing, but don't underestimate like a nearly trillion dollar market cap company for their ability yeah. to be like, oh, we can make one of those two. Copy, copy, copy. Here we go. Right. And I mean... We use Office 365, right? It integrates with everything else that we use. Okay. And again, like there's there's nothing wrong with Slack. Slack was an awesome tool. But again, it just flows a little bit better in what we're what we're doing. So Microsoft Teams is something we use, Fellow, which we've talked about. And something that we we used to do before, again, when we had Slack was a program called Office Vibe. And this program would send weekly surveys to employees asking them you know, just general feedback and kind of their feeling about the work environment and alignment and feedback and all of those sorts of things. So, but once we kind of migrated from Slack to Teams, we had to get rid of Office 5 because we couldn't add Office 5 as an app in Microsoft Teams. Okay. Yeah. So, so our main, our main kind of technology pieces, yeah, are Teams and, and Fellow. And then we have the internal culture, culture cast. And the software is called Office 5, like the number 5? Oh, Office Vibe, like V-I-V. Oh, okay. Like uh, what's the vibe yeah. going around the office? Let's do an employee engagement measurements. Okay, got it. Yeah, and it was really it was really interesting. And that was in kind of the early stages. Implementing Office Vibe was in the early stages of kind of my role in, as, in culture. And again, that's where that, that accountability piece was missing, right? We were having... All of these, our employees come to us saying, well, these are all the things that are wrong, but, you know, I'm pointing out maybe, you know, everything that they want to change, 
But at the same time, like we're not going to have a perfect reality and it's getting people to understand their role in the issues in the office. So again, adding that accountability piece has kind of moved us a little bit away from these surveys that we were pushing to employees before and adding in that accountability piece. Just a side note on that. (laughs) So that's interesting. So I want to understand this a little bit more. So maybe start with a little bit more of just like what really exactly Office Vibe does and how you were using it. This is like we send a survey, like it's software that sends a survey out to the team that says like, are you happy here? And is management doing a good job? Like what, mm-hmm. what exactly was it that it does or that you were doing with it? Yeah, exactly. So it would send, you know, it was like a five question survey on a weekly basis. So it was an app that you'd use through Slack. So employee would get a a personal message through the kind of, they call like a a bot. So it'd be like the Office Vibe bot and the bot would ask, oh, do you have time to answer this quick survey? It would take like a minute and the employees would, you know, fill it out. And then over time, I got all this data on kind of, you know, to have a employee like net, net promoter score and, you know, where, where employees are really kind of feeling that, you know, things weren't going as well. So kind of rate like happiness, engagement, satisfaction, communication with your manager. So it gave us all this amazing data, but again, there wasn't, there wasn't any kind of self-reflecting on that. It was all, okay, this is all the things that are wrong, but again, that next step is, okay, what is my role in that? So that's what Office 5 did. And don't get me wrong, the data was very cool to see. You could give feedback, you could do all these things. But again, it was that next step of adding in the account- accountability piece. But I'm I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm so fascinated and just stuck on yeah. like a, a, a weekly survey around employee engagement. So uh, are you like, maybe this is slightly my own like <laughs> Gen X or cynical jaded self. Like, <laughs> do people really take a weekly survey in Slack of like, how is our engagement? How's our satisfaction? How's your communication with a manager like every week that someone's asking me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think they were, they were different questions every week and they took like 30 seconds. They're pretty quick to, to complete. That you would write or just office five is figured out like we've just got a, a list of questions and we mix them up so that it stays in. You got it. And I, you know, I could craft my own surveys and based specifically on maybe questions I wanted to ask, but it was often just office vibe pushing out the the weekly survey and you know the the frequency i think people over time were getting pretty tired of it i won't lie i'll be transparent it doesn't have to be weekly you could set it as monthly but kind of my my thoughts on on the weekly was you know feedback should be it should be frequent right why would you wait from from the manager and i'm like i would love to just do this like daily how's daily because like the moment a problem's going on I as a, like I as a business owner would be like to be in there to intervene, right? Like I mean, just for my idealized world, like I always wish I knew everything that was happening and every problem at every moment, so we could always solve them in real time. <laughs> except <laughs> of be course, amazing? right? Then like, except everybody is so pissed that every single day I ask them how they're doing that at some point they just kind of blow me off, right? So there's just some balancing point of you know how often can I realistically get the feedback in a constructive manner. But I, but I sort of get it from the other end. Like I, I suppose the upshot at least is if I'm doing this survey every week, then if I actually do anything like boneheaded in the business, like everybody knows they're going to get to sound off on that. No more than <laughs> no more than six to seven days tops. Right. <laughs> and that there is a, like an interesting dynamic to that mechanism of what happens when employees actually know that 
the moment something is bothering them in the business, there will be a way for them to share that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think OfficeWeb, it was really effective when we were using it. But again, we because we transitioned to Microsoft Teams, we lost the ability to use it. Because it just literally doesn't have an integration. I think I think it honestly, I actually I actually think it does. I just don't think it's available within kind of our, our license with Teams yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I mean it, it was it was really cool and it was really interesting and people were on board. You know, there, there was feedback sometimes that their questions were repetitive, but again, it's it's an opportunity to keep <laughs> when feedback you fill it out top 50, of mind. I'm sure Office Five has some rotation of questions. When you fill it out oh, 52 yes. times a year, at some point, I would imagine <laughs> the you've kind of seen all the questions in the rotation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, like I said, the the data was really interesting, and it was like, oh man, you know, people are super stressed. Like our wellness at work, you know, it's it's way below average. Like, what can we do to improve that? So that data was like, it was cool. I was like, okay, I can I can really I can really have the collective voice of the team and figure out, okay, what can I do to add value? What can I do to help improve this? And it it was, it was cool. I I, I really enjoyed using it. And so I kind of get the context now of like, so we did this for a while and we're getting this continuous feedback and this is really cool. And I see stuff and I know what's going on. If there's some challenges or issues in the business, like I know that they're happening and then you get to the natural next step. It's like, okay, I've identified a problem. Now as a, a manager, I want to do something about it. And it sounds like that was where you then hit the wall of like, oh, so ironically, like Office Vibe, really good at helping me understand employee (laughs) engagement, not good at actually helping me to engage with employees about their employee engagement. Right. About, yeah. And about accountability, right? So everybody, everybody has a role, a role to play and people can often be really great at pointing out other people's lack of accountability, but don't often recognize their own and look at their own behavior. So Office 5 was a great tool for people to voice, you know, what they want to say. But again, that that next step, which is where kind of the reality-based leadership framework came in is, okay, yeah, like our circumstances aren't perfect, but what can you do as, a, as an individual to help? So that was kind of the next step of that development. And is that what then took you to fellow because you could start capturing agendas and to do the action items. And then when we come back next week, we're like, well, here was the action item. So did we get this thing done? And like now accountability is starting to get built in. Right, right, exactly. And and fellow fellows is such a great tool for that. It really it's just easy. It's just it's so easy to use, right? You can just delegate an action item and boom, like it's it's obvious it's there. Yeah, we really so far it's only been a actually maybe about a month that we've used it, but we so far we really enjoy it. And so as you as you went down this road with fellow and I kind of understand like the, the agendas and some of that back and forth around agendas and to do items. So what happened to surveying around employee engagement? Is that still a thing you do and measure in, in the business or have you kind of moved on and said, eh, well, we're doing these one-on-ones now. And if people aren't engaged, which is going to come up in our one-on-one. So we're going to do it there. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 more in the one-on-one conversations and I find that it's actually it's more effective when you can speak with somebody face to face about their development as opposed to just throwing if 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 somebody has some input on let's say our office environment or something that they would like to see changed, you know, I like to start that off as a conversation and just having frequent opportunities to chat with people, you're able to kind of be connected to to what they're thinking and but also coach them through okay, so you there you're in a challenging circumstance, okay, what what's your role in it and what can you do to help the situation? 
as opposed to here's a problem, can management fix it? It's like, no, 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 no. What's your role? What's your role in that? Interesting. And so, so to talk to us a little bit more about kind of one-on-one meetings, because I, I actually don't know a lot of advisory firms that necessarily do this or have a lot of structure around it, aside from maybe, you know, one-on-one once a year when we do our performance review kind of, kind of structure. Most firms I know, once you grow to a certain size of team, like we start doing team meetings because we just hmm. literally have to put everyone in the same room at the same time so we can make sure the communication flows and people know what other people are doing. But talk to us a little bit more about just literally like what are these one-on-one meetings? Like does does everyone meet with everyone? Who meets with who? How often do they happen? Like how does it actually work from a management end? For sure, for sure. So I meet with... Last year, I can tell you about last year because we lived it. I met with every single team member. So I think 17, 17 team members, 16 team members every month. So the conversations, my, my kind of thought behind that is, you know, semi-annual and annual reviews. It's like, why why are you waiting till halfway through the year to tell tell a person, you know, what they need to work on, right? Let's talk about it more frequently than that. So they actually have an opportunity to get better. So we we meet with people. I meet with everybody one-on-one. And, you know, as an example, let's say we, we just finished our, our kind of last, last one-on-one meetings in, in December of 2019. And kind of that's a more compensation conversation, review of the year, and just things that their, their aspirations are, the, the employees' aspirations for 2020. So an example of an agenda for this, this first round of, of one-on-one meetings is, you know, you know, what are you looking forward to most outside of work? What is, what excites you about the team? What's an area that you think you could use coaching on? Also in our, our end of year meetings, we give people, you know, feedback. And in this year's first review meeting, they, they have to kind of develop an action plan for, for how they're going to kind of work on those, those things to work on that, that we chatted about. And we also talk about their aspirations and, you know, those are kind of the themes of the conversation with every employee kind of moving through the year and I'll create the agendas, but now that we have fellow, it can be more of a collaborative, uh, collaborative event. And we can also have the history of all of our conversations. So, you know, the employee can go back and look like, Oh yeah, we talked about this. Like, you know, this is the impact I wanted to have this year. It's fresh in my mind. I know what it is. So again, that's, that's, that's where fellow comes in. So, so the, the, the goal is every month you're doing one of these meetings with every employee across the firm. Right. And I don't know how sustainable that is as we continue to grow. <laughs> well, I say, well, yeah, I, I was going to come to that question later. Like at, at some point is the vision you're going to go less frequently or is it some point the vision that like someone else is going to take half the people and you're going to take half the people because when they're 30 or 40 or 50, at some point you literally run out of hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think the the vision for that is we are a small team and, you know, people who are in, maybe we call them more lead roles, right? They're still managing a huge kind of, they still have to service, you know, 120 households or, you know, 300 households each. So they still have their advisor job. But then again, it's kind of the side hustle of that leadership role. And I think eventually as we continue to grow and add more people, again, people are going to be able to become more centralized in leadership positions. And ideally we'd have, you know, a, a lead of the advice department having development meetings with advisors, not me. So that's kind of where, okay. right. That's where I'd like to take so An advisor lead can have advisor one-on-ones and you'll yeah. have operations and, and the, and that side of the business for doing the one-on-ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how long does a typical meeting? Is this like a, a, a 30 minute check-in? Is this a, an hour? Is this a two hour meeting? 
You know, it really depends on, it depends on the conversation. Some of them are like quick, like 25, 30 minutes. And sometimes there are, you know, things that, that employees are, are struggling with a little bit, like, uh, I don't know an example, but yeah, but and like it's it's again it's walking them walking them through a better mental process about how to think about an issue. So sometimes the conversations can be long. Sometimes there can be a lot of laughing. Sometimes there can be crying. It's it's really interesting. So it's yeah. I mean, just it just depends on on the vibe and and what people want to talk about. And so the the agendas. I I get there's a level of collaborative because if they've got a thing that they want to talk about, like they'll put it on the agenda because they know they're going to have a meeting with you in a month. But is there otherwise a, like a, a standard structure? Hey, we're always going to give you some feedback on how you're doing for the month, check in about your aspirations for where things are going. Like, you know, boom, boom, here's our three to five sort of standard questions or talking points. And then you add yourself to the bottom if you want to, or is this a much more flexible ad- agenda? Like I'm just I'm imagining when you're doing monthly meetings that either like there's a very rigorous structure and you kind of do the same thing every time, or it's a very, very open structure and you're sort of flexing into it every time. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a bit of both. It can be a combination of what we've, what we've chatted about last time. It can be, you know, revisiting what, what their aspirations are for, for 2020 and kind of, you know, seeing, okay, is this still a priority for you? I know you want, you said you want to take CFA level two exam, you know, June, 2020, you know, where you're at with your studying. Um, how's that going? Do you need any support? So there's, you can look at people set their own priorities and then we can kind of just have those, those conversations. And, you know, it, it's really for, for the employee to, it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to say, you know, what they think about the current environment and just an open, open conversation. But the idea as well is if I'm having any performance-related concerns about an employee, like this is also where they're where they're happening. So I don't I don't have to build this up to annual review process. Like we're we're gonna talk about this in the in the in the one-on-one. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't wait. Like if there was a performance issue with a team member, I wouldn't wait. Like say and say their gig met yeah, their we call them gig meetings. It stands for growth impact goals. So their gig meeting, the the one-on-one meetings we've been talking about. I'm not going to wait a month to tell them about their performance issue. I'm going to talk to them that day. So it's, it would be, you know, if there was a performance issue for sure, we'd, we'd kind of address it. And then it would be a a follow-up to maybe that initial conversation in their, in their one-on-one gig meeting. Okay. And so how long have you been running this structure now? Oh, it's been a long, it's been a long time. And honestly, I won't lie. It's, it's not perfected. I think it's been since around 2015 was when we kind of okay. started implementing these one-on-one meetings, I think. But I mean, they weren't there. They weren't perfect. They're not perfect now. It's a really just kind of a, a learn as you a learn as you go kind of process, finding the best way to, to have an effective conversation. But I, I think people get a lot out of them. I learn a lot about you know, what people want to do and how we can kind of help them get there. So being just four, four plus years into it now, I'd imagine you've learned quite a bit. So what have you found is what, what works, what doesn't work when you're trying to do more of a, a real time ongoing interaction and feedback process? Yeah, I think people like the structure. Are you talking about the feedback process in the the one on ones or just feedback in general? The the one on ones and like how you're trying to run the meeting. So I'm gonna imagine for four years they probably evolved quite a bit and there's a whole bunch of Yep, not doing that anymore in our process. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think at the beginning it was a lot of 
you know, it, it was it was a weird transition for me personally because I was going from you know being a peer to a lot of these people to now being in a more you know leadership management role, and it was a you know it could kind of kind of be an awkward transition, right? Like all of a sudden you're you know buddy buddy with everybody, and then you're you're talking to them about their development and their compensation. So it was I think it was me working through getting over the fears about that, and then kind of understanding that having a collaborative agenda in these meetings will make them really effective. And it's, it's really fun to talk about people's development. I think kind of the, and again, just re- reading articles, you had how to, how to have an effective one-on-one, like, what does that look like? What questions should you ask? Or there's so many great resources out there. So it's just, it's figuring out what works and trying it. And if it doesn't work, get feedback, then be agile and change it. So, I, now that you brought this up, like I, I got asked about this as well. The the so the the transition from, I mean, to me, like you you sort of have two interesting transitions, right? I'm 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 in on the operations side. I'm going to go over the advisor side. Nah, no, actually, I, I really like the culture and HR and managing side more than the advising side. So there, there's kind of that shift, and then there's the one that I think is a challenge for almost anyone in any context, but I would think even harder just when you're still in your 20s of, so I started out in an entry position and a few years later, I am the manager of the people Mm -hmm. that I started out with, some of whom might have even been there before I was, depending on the sequence. 20 years before I have. Right. And as you said, going from, you know, buddy, buddy conversations and drinks to like, so I have to talk to you about your performance and your compensation. Performance and your and your behavior and your development. And and it really is like you kind of just can't hold hold back, right? You have to it's a mind shift a little bit. And you can have still be be close with people, absolutely, and be friendly with people. But at the same time, in the back of my head, in my mind, I'm always like, okay, I have to, I definitely have to keep a different level of professionalism that I did before. And it's, it's a, that, that transition of, yeah, you're, you're my friend, but now again, we're going to be talking about, you know, compensation. Like it's, it's almost just like, Hey, like this is how our relationship was before. And I, I really value that, but these are the, just be transparent, right? There's no, just be honest. And you know, these are the kind of conversations we're going to be having moving forward. And I hope you're okay with that. And again, yeah, just be honest, be transparent. I mean, no point in holding back. The more you, the more you get in those conversations, the easier it gets. And like over time, right. Just like, like culture, it's not quick. Like you just, you have to develop these things over time and eventually it becomes the norm. And eventually everybody gets more comfortable with, with the new norm. So as someone that kind of lives and breathes the, the, the culture for your, your firm and tries to set this pace, like how, how do you describe culture? and the, and the culture of your firm in particular? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like I said, at the beginning, we're, we're, we're different offices with, with different cultures and I can only really speak authentically about the culture of our team. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, and I, I earlier when we, when we kind of touched on this is, you know, culture is, it's fluid and 
in its actions, right? The biggest thing about culture is its actions, right? You, again, like you can't just put these beautiful fluffy words up in the boardroom and expect to have, you know, great culture. And back in 2015, when I was really trying to figure this out, I came across the Netflix culture slide deck and they say that true culture and values, as opposed to these nice sounding values are shown by who gets promoted, rewarded and let go. Right. And I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And real company values are behaviors and skills that companies particularly value in fellow employees. So again, it's it's not an overnight process and it's it's not stationary. And I kind of like to relate it to the flywheel that Jim Collins talks about, right? It's this impact of your actions and your decisions and a little bit of luck that can really help you gain momentum to become successful, right? It's this compounding effect of hard work, effort, and learning from failure. So that's kind of the beginning of how you would think about cultivating culture. But then, so then I'm wondering, like in, in the context of your firm in particular, so like, how do you, how do you describe your culture in particular? As you said, like, culture is is driven by who gets promoted and who gets let go so you know, who well i was gonna say who's getting promoted and who's getting let go but like maybe we can just talk hypothetically about who's like getting let go but yeah. like what <laughs> yeah. what does that look like in practice in a firm like yours right it comes back to to actions and again it's it's you know what do we value and in our team you know, we value, we value personal accountability. We value feedback. We value wellness and we value care. You know, care is one of, one of the things we talk about. And it's like, you know, we're in this, we're in this together as a group. So seeing as those are the things that we value again, how do we action that on a daily basis? So if we value personal accountability, again, am I going to fall into sympathy as a leader or am I going to go to empathy and help people see their circumstances in a different way? So these one-on-one kind of conversations are incredibly important, right? This can happen after, let's say, a meeting with a with a client or a prospect. We have a maybe more a more junior advisor and then a more experienced advisor, right? Do they just leave that meeting without talking to each other, or do they say, okay, does the senior advisor say, give me two things that I could have done better in that meeting, and then the junior advisor does the same thing, right? So it's this two way model feedback. So if we believe in personal accountability and feedback, again, how do we action that every single day? And we're not perfect, right? We, this is, again, it's the actions. It, it takes effort and a lot of kind of top of mind conscious thinking to implement these things. And, you know, if it's something that we really value, we're going to do it. So what surprised you the most in trying to build a strong culture at the firm? Yeah. I mean, again, at the, at the team, right? So the team level, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of learning, a lot of failures, a lot of things, you know, conventional ways of thinking about leadership that aren't super effective. I think figuring out the facts and just having a growth mindset, you know, Carol Dweck talks about growth versus fixed mindset and truly using that mentality of, you know, what if I don't have it now, it doesn't mean I'm never going to get it. It doesn't mean I'm never going to figure it out. So it's just this relentless need to always figure out you know, the evidence-based way to, way to do something. And I think we've, you know, eventually over, over time, we've arrived at, at this kind of structure of, of leadership through reality-based leadership and through fellow and, and all these great things. So it, what surprised me most, most is, I guess, how much misinformation is out there and how much, you know, when I first looked into this role, I was like, oh yeah, like culture's, culture's beer, culture's happy hour. It's, you know, cute puppies walking around the office. Like, no, 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 that's not it at all. It's actions and behaviors. 
and your your culture is really going to shine through. I mean, I think I think it's Ben Horowitz. I think he has this awesome quote from his book, "What you do is who you are," and he says like the best way to understand your culture is not through what managers tell you, but through how new employees behave. Right. So, what behavior do they perceive will help them fit in, survive, and succeed? Right. That's your company culture. That makes a lot of sense to me. What do you think? Oh, I like that. I like yeah. that. The best. The best way to understand your culture is how new your new employees behave. Because it's so true, right? Yes, if someone new comes on board, you know, anytime you're in a new environment, it is probably the moment, at least for reasonably astute employees, like it is the moment you are most attuned to everything that's happening around you because you're trying to figure out how does it work around here? How do I fit in? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like yeah. What do I have to do to look good in front of my peers or my boss? What do I really not do? Because I want to look bad and get in trouble. And so, you got it. granted, there's maybe a subset of folks who are a little bit oblivious to that stuff and march their own <laughs> tune. But for most people, like you start picking up on the social cues pretty quickly and figuring out what kinds of behaviors around here are are rewarded or frowned upon. And, you, and you're on your best behavior because you don't want to get fired right after you start a new job. So... You are, you are paying the most attention and you are trying the hardest to be on quote unquote, your best behavior, which basically means you will try as hard as you can to exemplify whatever you believe the firm's culture is when you first take it in and show up. You got it right. What's going to help them fit in, survive and succeed. Oh, it just makes so much sense to me. I'm like, wow, yes, that I get it now. Yeah. I love that. I just, I just, I'm I'm about 70% through his book and it's phenomenal. And what, you know, I was saying, what was the book and who? Yeah. So Ben Horowitz of, you know, Horowitz and and Andreessen. And uh, the book is what you do is who you are. All right. Very cool. We will make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Awesome. (laughs) So what was the low point for you on the journey? Oh, that's a good question. I think the getting out of the headspace of, you know, this girl used to fill out paperwork and now she's talking to me about my development, my development and my compensation. Like who is like, what, what experience does she have? Right. So getting over that in my head was, I think, well, I mean, it was a great thing for sure, but the, the the low points were lacking that kind of self-confidence in my ability to cultivate a culture, right? Like that was a, it was daunting, but at the same time, like I, I, I know I brought up Carol Dweck already, but I read her book and I was like, oh my gosh, I can, you know, after reading this book, I can do anything, right? Have you read Growth Mindset or Mindset by Carol yep, Dweck? Yep. It is a, it is a powerful book. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, just having that mentality really helped kind of move things forward and kind of help me gain confidence. And, you know, it's like, if you have a fixed mindset, you're, you're avoiding everything that's going to make you actually great at it because you think you're never going to be good at it. So you're like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not good at public speaking. Therefore I'm not going to do any public speaking and therefore you don't get any experience public speaking. So kind of just diving into, okay, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to create this one-on-one gig meeting kind of cadence of, you know, meeting with employees. I'm, I'm going to go and learn about reality-based leadership and overcome my fear of public speaking and deliver workshops to the company. Right. So it's again, that the low point of following to a fixed mindset, but then realizing I got to get out of that, I think has been a great lesson and failure is awesome. Like I, I, I've learned way more from my failures than I have my successes. And I'm, I'm struck as well that just, it sounds kind of a, 
a style and approach for you overall. Like for for you, when you hit a wall with the challenge, it's like I I I got to go. I got to go read something. I got to go find something. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take in new information to learn my way or climb my way through the challenge. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's really part of part of our culture as as a team. You know, we have a, a big focus on continuous learning. It, it just shines through in 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 our actions, right? It's it's what Ben and Cameron have been able to do with with the podcast. The Rational Reminder has been really really great. I mean, they kind of throw these hail mary passes to these really interesting people, and people will will say yes, and it's kind of just being okay, being vulnerable. And understanding that, you know, being vulnerable when you feel like that, it's you're, you're actually going to be courageous and brave. And we really try to instill that every day in our people. And, you know, it's like, why, why not try? Why, why not? And yeah, I, I think that's something that we value. So for someone who's listening, who's maybe like loving what they hear, oh my gosh, I wish my firm's culture was like this, or I could build up like this, but we don't have all the stuff you're talking about. We're like, or where you were five years ago or six years ago, who wants to start getting started and going down this road? Like, what would you tell someone that wants to take the first step of taking control of a culture that maybe they've never particularly defined or done anything with beyond it was just sort of a reflection of the people that were there and it it, it is what it is? Right. I mean, I think, you know, take a look at what at what virtues are important to you. And ask yourself, okay, if this is if this is really really meaningful to me, how am I implementing this? How do my actions relate to what I value? And you know, let's say let's say you know your boss is like, yeah, we have to be on time for meetings. Like this is super important. If you're five minutes early, you're late, right? But then he himself or she herself are, is always late for meetings. No one's going to value that rule. So look at your own actions first. Look at what you can do as an individual to help. And then again, start start acting on your values. And I mean, just coming back to, to learning, right? Learning when I first started again getting into this role, it was like, okay, what is motivation? Like what is what does motivation really mean? Or what does behavior change mean? Like what is vulnerability? Like what are the costs of incivility in the workplace? And then you kind of just go down all of these rabbit holes and start listening to amazing content from so many sources. And you just you keep picking off the things that you that you hear and and it, I mean, it takes work, like sacrifice. Like, you know, I don't really go home and watch Netflix. I go home and read. I mean, I watch Netflix sometimes, I won't lie. <laughs> but but you know what I mean? It's it's this kind of this dedication to, okay, what do I value and how do I implement it on a daily basis? So it comes back to you. So anything that you like wish you could go back and tell you from four or five years ago as you were starting down this journey that like you know now and wish you knew then? Oh, so many things. I think one of the biggest biggest lessons was, and again, just I had these thoughts before, but again, Sai Weekmish just says it really well, is stop the stories, stop the stress, right? There's so many times where, you know, before like somebody's, somebody's meeting, like a one-on-one meeting, like, oh my gosh, like this is going to be such a bad meeting. They think I'm a terrible leader, right? There's no point to these conversations. Like, what am I doing here? Like, why do they value what I have to say? And then after the meeting, it turns out it was an awesome meeting and we had a great conversation. So it's that recognizing, not believing everything I think. (laughs) And I think, you know, people can tend to catastrophize things and have 
black and white thinking and, you know, it's really, you know, what's the point in stressing out and just, just kind of go for it. And you're most likely going to have a good experience in some cases, I think. It reminds me a little, you know, one of the themes we had come up early on this podcast with Carl Richards is around the the phenomenon of the imposter syndrome, which is actually like well-researched in, in, in psychology yes, now, yeah. you know, the, these situations that we get ourselves into where, you know, like you may be, you may be fully qualified to do the thing you're about to do, but if you don't believe yourself, like, you know, that, that, that nagging deep down, like, man, my, my clients pay me a lot of money. Like, am I, am I really actually worth this? <laughs> like, I hope they don't, I hope they don't realize that like, I'm actually usually just figuring all this stuff out about five minutes before I get to the meeting sometimes. Right. And like, we start, we start criticizing and talking ourselves down and, 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 and this, like this feeling of, I don't feel like I, like, I don't feel like I'm really as good as everybody thinks I am. And I'm afraid that they're going to realize that I'm an imposter. Like that's where the right. the, the, the name comes from that. It, it strikes me like what, what you're describing of size work sounds very much to me like an, an extension of imposter syndrome, right? If you tell your, if you tell yourself the imposter stories, you may even actually successfully convince yourself they're true and then sabotage yourself. If you, you got it, if you just stop the stories, you stop all the stressing around it and just do the thing and let it happen. And yeah, it, it might actually turn out you're okay at it. Totally. And it's getting back to the facts, right? Like before, let's say, you know, when I first started doing the, the one-on-one meetings, like I get super stressed out about, about them and like create all these stories that, oh my gosh, people don't value what I have to say. Meanwhile, like I have no evidence that this person thinks that way, right? So at getting back to the facts, right? What do I know for sure? The only thing I know for sure is that I booked a meeting with this person and we're going to have a meeting and we have an agenda. That is, that is the facts. That's it. So why why bother kind of creating this terrible storm in my head about how everything's going to be terrible when really nothing's happened yet. Oh, very cool. So what, what comes next for you? Yeah, I, I think it's just continuing, continuing to grow, to grow the team and add talented, responsible, responsible people. That's kind of the next step. And, and, you know, seeing where we really want to take, take the, take the team and, and what we want to do. And I, I think that what we, what we want to do is continue growing. And I think we have this kind of solid structure in place and to, to enable, enable growth. So I think that's the plan. So, so as we wrap up, as you know, this is a, a podcast around success and, and one of the themes that always comes up, success means different things, different people, as you pointed out, like it, it changes in our own mindset as we Start down one version <laughs> of our career path. I'm like, I actually don't like this. I'm going to go to this other direction as well. Yes. So you know, you you are navigating this journey as you go, and it certainly sounds like it have really hit your stride in in finding success and building culture. How do you define success for yourself as you look forward from here? Oh, I love this question. It's such a good question. I think it's doing something small every day that brings me joy. The compounding effects of that are are real, at least in my perspective, from my perspective. Yeah. And any direction that you're trying to compound that towards, or is that just part of the journey? I think it's just part of the journey, right? I mean, it's something that I want to make sure that I'm being the absolute best kind of culture lead for our team. So, you know, what does that mean, right? That's a great goal, but okay, what can I do every single day that's going to get me there. And that's 
okay, I'm going to read, you know, 25 pages of, of, you know, Ben Horowitz's book every night. And I'm going to kind of just continually to continually chip away and get myself really comfortable in this culture role. And again, like the, the compounding effects of kind of those, the small habits over time will kind of get you to where you want to go. Well, very cool. I love it. I'm, I'm very curious and excited to see where that actually goes for your journey. So we may have to check back in a couple of years and, and see where that is compounding for you. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tessa, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a great experience. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>